Just before I start this podcast, I have a quick editing note. I originally recorded this podcast on the 3rd of March, but I finished editing it on the 12th. While editing, a couple mistakes unfortunately led to some of my words being cut off. I tried to re-record the most important parts, so you might notice a little bit of inconsistency with the audio there. I hope that, despite that, this podcast will still be informative. Hello, and welcome to my podcast. Today I wanted to talk about Russia and Ukraine. As I hear the news every day, both reacting to how we got to this position in the first place and events on the ground and political moves in a broader context, I notice that there is very little coverage of a particular historical analogy that I feel like is really important and follows very closely to what is happening today. I see that the driving ideals behind Russia, and mainly Putin's administration in Russia, many of the political maneuvers and speeches and ideas that Putin is trying to proliferate and sell to us mirror very closely the rise of Germany leading up to World War II. The phrase, history never repeats itself, it rhymes, comes to mind in this situation. The cycle seems to occur like this. Something happens, something terrible might happen, like a war, then there is a very strong reaction to it. People who saw it with their own eyes, they strongly know to heed the future generations, tell the stories, to try and stop it from happening again. However, this fades over time. Our resistance as a society to actions that are authoritarian, that are in the interest of empire, that cause collapses in a democratic world order, it all fades away eventually as our memory of it grows further and further away. So what happens is that the effects are remembered as just the way things are. It just becomes a one thing in a blend of things that happened in history to make the modern day. And people don't remember that at the time there were things that could have been done to stop it and there were ways to avoid it. It was not a fact of history before it happened or even as it was happening. I do believe that no matter when, the forces and conditions required for repetition or rhyming of history linger, and they attempt to claw their way back, but until the bulwarks against them falter, they don't. After a long enough time, however, when we are less immune to these violent or subversive actions, a domino effect could be triggered, and we are given the very difficult task of stopping it and remembering. I believe that the past eight years, or even Putin's actions since he took power in 1999, suggest that we are following this path and this rulebook that has happened before with, notably, Hitler. Framing the Ukrainian invasion and the broader crisis in Europe in the context of the Second World War and the prelude to it, I think goes a long way to helping us understand where we are and where we could be going, and ultimately how to not repeat the worst parts of our history. One thing I remember from watching a interview with Yuval Noah Harari from the 2nd of March this year was that he spoke on how events like the Russian invasion of Ukraine show and remind us about what has changed in war and what has stayed roughly the same in war and politics. In this conflict, unfortunately, there are many things that rhyme with the rise of Nazi Germany, but there are also many things which demonstrate just how much different the world is this time around. I'd like to start by walking us through the similarities between 
Hitler's regime and Putin's and how they conquered territories early on. The first part of this is their rise to power. Hitler maneuvered himself into a position of power in the early 30s, 1930s. He was appointed chancellor by Hindenburg, the president of Germany then, and used that position to seize more and more power. At first he was fairly elected, however he used the powers given to him to squeeze political opposition and gain influence until a crisis occurred where the German government building, the Reichstag, as it was known then, it's known now as the Bundestag, was burned down. The burning of the Reichstag has been suggested to have been a Nazi plot, and may in fact have been such. However, at the time it was blamed on the communist opposition. In an eerily similar path, Putin climbed through President Yeltsin's government in the 1990s, and in 1999 he was appointed prime minister at the end of a very long line of successive prime ministers who didn't last very long. Just a month into Putin's time as prime minister, a spate of bombings occurred in Russia. The circumstances of these bombings are incredibly suspicious and potentially suggest foul play on part of the FSB. There's been suggestion even that Putin knew of or was responsible for planning these attacks, but nonetheless they were used to justify a war against Chechnya, which was a independently governed country in the south of Russia that had just won its independence a few years prior. A war was justified against Chechnya after the bombings, and Putin used that to boost his popularity so that he won the presidency the next March. Much like Hitler, after Putin became president, he squeezed political opposition and expanded his influence to essentially create a one-party state. Ultimately, the two leaders utilized or orchestrated unrest and chaos in their countries and exploited and undermined their democratic systems to gain and consolidate their power. Now the second part of this is the similarities in their agenda. Hitler built the Nazi movement on a few ideological pillars. The first being the restoration of German pride, the second being the restoration of the German people's borders and their influence, and third being the persecution of the German people's supposed enemies. These pillars were relatively vague and deliberately so. However, they resonated with many Germans, and the platform Hitler built came about due to underlying sentiments within Germany. It formed a powerful narrative and path that the nation could follow onwards to conquer more territory. Hitler had convinced himself and his followers that Germany had been wronged in the First World War. He believed that Germany's borders should encompass all ethnic German people, and that Germany was entitled to be dominant over others due to superior cultural factors. Hitler's central goal early on was to territorially expand, to reunify, supposedly, the ethnically German people spread across Central Europe. In a set of conditions that very closely mirror what Hitler did and built, Putin seeks to do much the same with Russia. Russia was once the dominant power in the old Soviet Union, and had influence over many different ethnicities and smaller republics. Once, however, the Soviet Union collapsed, many regions, including ethnically majority Russian ones, fell out of direct Russian control. Putin is motivated himself, and motivates his people and government, with the false precedent for Russian rule over the ex-Soviet territory, and believes that he should reunite them under Russia. And in fact, it is his duty to, and going further, he believes that the Russians living in other countries would like for Russia to come in and take them back into the fold of the Russian Federation. 
The next part of this is their strategy. Hitler utilized his ideological beliefs to buoy political maneuvering. He pushed Germans living in other countries, such as Austria and Czechoslovakia, to campaign for unification with Germany and create unrest in their local region. Hitler's first target for unification was with Austria. To prepare Austria for this, Hitler backed the Austrian Nazi movement. He pressured the right-wing government in Austria to hold a referendum which would decide whether Austria would be independent or become annexed. While there may very well have already been a majority support for reunification among the Austrian people, on the eve of the referendum being held, Germany used concern that the results would be tampered with to invade Austria. His troops went in without a fight, and a month later, his government conducted the referendum. When it was counted, ultimately a figure of 99.7 approval was produced. This annexation of Austria in 1938 was his first major territorial move towards reuniting the German people. He essentially invented a narrative which created a gray zone for the sovereignty of Austria, and whether Austria voted to or didn't vote to join Germany ultimately was sort of beside the point for him, and all he needed to have really was a referendum. The moment there was a referendum, it gave Hitler and Germany the chance to exploit a gap or a brief moment of instability in Austrian politics to ultimately annex them. This is something that authoritarian leaders are often very good at. Instabilities in democracy, which are normally ridden out and normally resolve themselves, are prime opportunities for authoritarian leaders to sweep in and subvert democratic processes. After the annexation of Austria, Hitler threatened Czechoslovakia with military conflict lest they give up the majority German Sudetenland to Germany. This pressure towards Czechoslovakia sparked a crisis that pushed Europe near the brink of war. The liberal democratic nations like France and Britain, wishing not to become involved in a conflict, negotiated with and submitted to Hitler. While they immediately avoided crisis with Hitler by acquiescing to his demands, they were too stupid, in my opinion, to foresee that his ultimate aims would place the rest of Czechoslovakia and even Poland and the rest of Europe in his crosshairs. Just as Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland was given up to the Germans by Czechoslovakia's supposedly affirmed allies like Britain and France, we can see that in Ukraine the same thing happened in 2014 with Crimea. I essentially believe that in analogizing Hitler's actions in the 1930s to Putin's now, we can clearly see that Ukraine is essentially a modern analogy for Czechoslovakia and their relations with Germany in the 30s. In Putin's case, when the USSR collapsed in 1991, Ukraine was the first former Soviet Republic to declare independence. Putin believes that Russia is more resolute to fulfill its belief that Ukraine and the ex-Soviet states belong to it than the West is willing to stop it. In 2014, after Ukrainians kicked a pro-Russian president out, Russia resorted to more heavy-handed influence over the country, and they encouraged dissent and secessionist sentiment in majority Russian regions, which gave them a cause to invade. With the lines of sovereignty in territories blurred slightly, it was just enough that Russia could use the fact that some Russians in Ukraine were inviting them into their region to invade the territory and occupy it by force. Russia claimed it was acting in the legitimate interest of the people and Crimea. To officially bolster his claim in the region, he had the local Crimean government hold a pretty much bogus referendum in the region, which turned out exactly how Putin wanted it to, of course. 
After some protesting from the weak Ukrainian government and Western powers enacting some gestural sanctions, Crimea was annexed into Russia and held in little contention as to who owned it by those in a position to actually oppose Russia. Just as Hitler took the Sudetenland away from Czechoslovakia with almost no fight, Putin did so with Crimea. Now he engages in the analog of finishing off Czechoslovakia with Ukraine. The unfinished business has resolved itself into war, and only this time, Ukraine and the Western onlookers are different. This brings us to the differences in the modern case, and I believe they suggest that the world order is essentially a lot more peaceful and a lot more apt at coping with authoritarian regime. The reaction to Ukraine ultimately has been incredibly both surprising and effective at preventing Russia from pushing the world into autocracy further, and serves an, as an example emblazoned on the modern conscience of what authoritarian regimes look like when they try to seize power. To compare with Hitler, during his escalations to war, the regional and world powers were affected by crippling apathy and pacifism. The peaceful European powers at the time were so devastated by the memory of the First World War that they ignored the military and geopolitical realities which flared up in the 1930s. Instead of saying never again and then taking that to constantly monitor the world order to secure their peace, countries like France and Britain relied on initial punitive measures on Germany and a belief that no one who lived through that war would ever seek war again. Instead, when they believed that until it was too late, the beginning of the war had already been decided on Hitler's terms. They were left in a position where they couldn't catch up with reality in time. It was too late to stop Germany from successfully invading and conquering Poland, and the UK and France were not ready for a modern war that they had just been dragged into. In 2022, eight years after the first warning shots about a Ukrainian war, world leaders tested a new policy to address Putin's aggression. Putin and Hitler were both emboldened by the limp responses of other countries to their invasion. If Putin could expect to endure the same sanctions put on Russia as were placed on Russia in 2014, then to him it would be worth the trade-off. Leading up to the Russian invasions, there was a worrying level of hesitancy among the Western powers, the ones who were able to sanction Russia, able to damage their economy, and able to fight back in other ways, that they would not act. They were hesitant to put in place a plan for how they would respond to Russia's actions for fear of provoking Russia and hurting their own economy, hurting their people. What happened when Russia actually invaded was that the European powers rallied around a strong Ukrainian government who was committed to fighting back against Russia, resisting them in military and partisan operations. Ukraine became a power worth backing and worth fighting for. Ultimately, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, became a rallying point for Western nations to stand up to Russia around. One of the reasons why the NATO alliance strung itself back together so quickly and effectively was that just days prior to the actual invasion, the politicians like Macron or Schultz, the French and German leaders respectively, was that they had just gone to Putin, again days before, asking for assurances that there would be no war, and Putin gave those assurances. Similarly to how Neville Chamberlain took home the sheet of paper from the Munich conference when he agreed to give Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland to Germany, and said this will be peace in our time, so did the European leaders to their people. And now, mere days after receiving those assurances, they have to be accountable to their words. 
and what their words were, essentially were lies. They were under a false assumption that Russia would not invade. And thus, the reaction, the surprise, the betrayal, in fact, of Russia hurts all the more and compels them to react more strongly to Russia. The other major thing, besides the structure of alliances that were built up around Ukraine, that affects this war, is the strategy that NATO has taken to countering Russia's encroachment. In war, typically a power who seeks to de-escalate cannot make actions that escalate. This would just seem sort of logically obvious. If your interest is to de-escalate a situation, then there is an extreme hesitancy to put in place strong words, strong guarantees, before anything happens against the defender, which will aggravate the aggressor. In 2014, even as the Russian invasion of Crimea was playing out, the Western powers or NATO powers essentially waited until Russia moved into Crimea and took over in order to enact sanctions. However, by that point, they had a flimsy legal basis on which to impose sanctions on Russia. By that point, of course, Putin had exploited the idea of referendums and of democracy to essentially create a legal precedent and document declaring Crimea as having voted to join Russia. In a very unique set of political maneuvering on the United States' part, in the lead up to the Ukrainian invasion, which used the Donbass regions in rebellion as the justification for the invasion, the US government essentially published or publicized a roadmap for what Russia might do leading up to a war, how they were gonna do it, how they would say they're gonna do it, and tried to stay one step ahead of Russia's actions, accusing them of things or of their intention to do things which they had not yet even done. Of course, this essentially involves making things up in the first place. However, you're essentially hedging your bets that an authoritarian leader with certain authoritarian tendencies, as Putin is and does, will follow a certain set of steps to create false pretenses for war, to stage fake attacks in order to create a justification for war. By the US essentially preempting Russia's attempts to create justifications for war, we highlighted to the rest of the world that Russia was the one at fault for doing all this. Similar to how on the precipice of the Second World War, Britain and France knew that they couldn't risk war with Germany. The US and NATO know that they cannot risk war with Russia. A war between NATO and Russia would likely mean nuclear weapons. Nuclear war is a line that no country wants to escalate to, or dream of. Whereas in the 1930s, Britain and France believed that they must do everything they could to stop war, and that this meant shying away from any options that were harsh or punitive. They believed that to speak in the language Hitler was speaking to them, one of speaking in strong terms, drawing lines, and proactive political maneuvering would risk war. This time around, Europe, the US, NATO countries in general, and other countries in the world are fighting back with economic power. The retaliatory strategy of replying to Russia's military aggression with economic sanctions, military unity, and preemptive diplomacy all match in magnitude what Russia is doing. This strategy has seen the US publish information that preempts Russian excuses for war. If Russia had gone ahead and filmed a fake invasion video or staged something, and then the US and her allies pointed it out and said, this is fake, 
there'd be much more doubt on its authenticity and the damage may have already been done by the time they're able to propagate the fact that it's false. If the US levies that accusation beforehand and a video comes out later, the US was the first one to the punch and essentially that video is moot, it's nullified. When the US government holds a press conference and says, if Russia does this, which we think they will, we will do this economically, it gives no excuse to Russia to claim that they didn't know what would happen or that the US is lying about the Russian intentions after the action has already been committed. In essence, this strategy leaves little room for authoritarian dictators to control the narrative and undermine democracies. The sanctions placed on Russia in the wake of their war in Ukraine could not have been predicted in 2014. Putin seems to have gotten his war calculus wrong and it's hurting him back. It seems that in the 21st century, we have learned our way around appeasement. Where Britain and France failed in the 1930s to stop Hitler by appeasing him and acquiescing to his authoritarian tendencies and maneuvering, the NATO countries in 2022 have responded decisively. And while they can't risk taking military action, they've set an example for what it looks like to fight back peacefully. This show of unity and unshakability displays what democratic countries can do when they cannot risk war however others have chosen it. Ultimately, what Hitler's rise to power and eventual war path to the Second World War has taught us is that we need to, as liberal democracies, intercept these threats and box in the aggressors with alliances that assure mutual protection and unity through policy. As I record this, in the midst of this war, I am just as unsure as everyone else of the outcome. I hope that Ukraine prevails against Russia, and that once they do, the world will have gained new knowledge of how to counter these authoritarian regimes. What has been demonstrated in the first few days of the conflict is that there are ways that those who cannot risk war, like liberal democracies, can fight back and that being unified in the face of a country like Russia, a country like Nazi Germany, can empower and enable the people under threat and those who wish to help them to preempt, to resist, and to fight back against them. That's all I have to say for now. I'll link to further reading and my sources in a link in the description. Thank you and goodbye.